Well, we are nearing the end of our consecutive expository series in the Gospel of Mark. We're in the last third of the book and in the last week of Jesus' life. And matter of fact, it is today's subject that touches upon the end of Jesus' life. The passion narrative takes us to the death, the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, you may see in your bulletin and on the screen uh, the, that we will be going all the way through uh, verse 47, but we are not uh, going to go that far. I'm going to save that part uh, to, for the final conclusion uh, of the series next week. And so our scripture reading will be today from Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 1 through verse 39. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles or your devices, but whatever way you are listening, listen with careful attention, for this is the word of the living God. Hear it with appreciation. As soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. 
And they compelled a passer-by, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it and said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether or not Elijah will come take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing now upon it. Holy Father, Lord, what what a day. What a horrible day for your son. But what a glorious day it would lead to for us. Will you help us understand more of his sacrifice, of his substitutionary atonement for sinners like us? And we pray all this now, asking this help in the matchless name of the one who is no longer dead, but risen, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may have wondered why the Apostles' Creed, one of the most famous, probably the most well-known of all the creeds, you may wonder why in the Apostles' Creed there is mention of an out-of-favor, two-bit Roman governor in one of the most august 
and creeds in all of Christianity. The fact is that Pontius Pilate, that Roman governor, presided over the final condemnation and execution of Jesus of Nazareth. But his inclusion in the, in the Apostles' Creed, his inclusion in that is not about him. The reason for the inclusion is to ground what happened that day under the, his Weasley administration and show that Jesus' death actually happened. He was crucified, unlike the Muslims who say he was not. He was crucified, dead, and buried. What happened then happened in fact, in actual space-time history more than 2,000 years ago. Or almost 2,000 years ago. Now, where are we? Last week, there was the trial before the Sanhedrin. And after the interlude of Peter's denial, remember we ended up on that note, where Peter denied, just like Jesus said, three times before the cock crowed twice. Mark picks up the story of what the Jews had done in the trial of Jesus. They had condemned him. The Supreme Court, known as the Sanhedrin, had reached their verdict, but they had a problem. They couldn't carry out a capital sentence. They had to get the help of the vile Romans to do that. And as the saying goes, sometimes strange bedfellows end up in bed together. And that certainly was the case here, but they needed Pilate. And so they drug Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the governor, or procurator of that part of the empire in Palestine. Today, the outline is this. The substitute, the sentence, and the suffering. And of course, they kind of, this, the sentence and the suffering bleed over really into one thing. But for three, uh, that gives us the substitute, the su- sentence, and the suffering. The substitute is in verses 1 through 15 in your text that I read. And again, I've already read the text. I'm just going to be commenting on various salient points that need to be noted or implications that, that come out from that, what we've already read in our text. Mark's account, just like most of what Mark does in his transactions between, uh, are often very brief. Mark is, remember, always on the move. He's always on the go. He's the one that writes immediately, immediately, and immediately. Just then, he's always seemingly moving up the tempo. Mark is briskly moving things along. And this conversation with Jesus and Pilate, there's not as much detail as you find in other Gospels. But though it's short in substance, it's very, very pregnant with irony. It's full of irony in what is happening here in this travesty of justice that Pontius Pilate finally puts into action. 
Pilate had, as you heard me read, a rather curious tradition of setting one criminal, one vile criminal, free during the feast of Passover. It was kind of like, for some reason, it was a bone that he threw to the Jewish leadership. Now, that's strange because, I say it's curious, because Pilate was not known for his cooperativeness or his gentleness. He was known for his inflexibility and his strong cruelty. And so why does he establish such a tradition as this? But Pilate has not found no fault in Jesus. He had queried him, and the others indicate a further query, like saying Mark is giving a brief, skinnier account. But Pilate had found no fault in Jesus, and so he knew this was a conundrum that he was in the midst of. He knew this was this whole thing could go sideways. It could result in, he could see the agitation. And so Pilate thinks, ah, I got the solution. I found a way. He thought he'd find a way to get out of this mess by giving the people an opportunity to choose between Jesus of Nazareth and Barabbas. Now, who was Barabbas? He was a cutthroat murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He had killed or been been behind the killing of many Romans. And he was finally about to get his comeuppance along with the two other guys that end up being crucified with Jesus. And so, Pilate thinks, okay, I got a ferocious lion here that's dangerous, and I got this limpy, wimpy lamb here, this Jesus who won't even respond. He's just being led like a lamb to the slaughter. You know, surely the people will want him, not this dangerous criminal, turned loose. So he thought, no-brainer, right? But Pilate got schooled once again by the Jewish leadership. Pilate was very shrewd and very political, but he was out of his league that day. He was dealing with real snakes and scorpions. He brought a knife to a gunfight, and he lost It was not going to go any way that he was envisioning. He knew that he was being complicitous with something that was wrong. Even Pilate, as practical as he was, he knew this was all wrong. But Pilate, like I say, was outmanned, outgunned, and outwitted. Now notice the string of ironies here. Barabbas, he had a first name, or actually Barabbas was his last name. His first name was Jesus. And so he was Jesus Barabbas. And you know what his name translates into? Jesus, the son of the father. Jesus Barabbas means, in Hebrew, Jesus, the son of the father. Now, now you see the irony already of that? Jesus of Nazareth is the true son of the father in heaven. And yet here they are, both on the choosing block. 
But the religious leaders and the mob, they wanted Pilate to release the other Jesus. Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. One of my favorite songs is, um, we've sung it here a number of times, my song is Love Unknown. Um, and one of the lines in there, it says, my Lord, they made a way. And it says, a murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. A murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. That's what happened on that awful and fateful day. You know what? Then and now, most people want the other Jesus. They don't want the real Jesus. They don't want Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus that rose from the dead and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father and coming again to judge the world. They don't want that Jesus. They want the other Jesus. One they can live with and perhaps live without. Kind of a a Jesus of convenience. When it's appropriate, when it's the right time, I'll, I'll, I'll get closer to him or I'll have some transactions with him. But generally, I'm going to run and lead my own life until my 4OK plummets or till my health breaks. Then I'm going to be calling for Jesus to hurry up and do his thing. You see, Jesus, for them and for many people, it's basically equivalent to a rabbit's foot. How many of you know what a rabbit's foot is? Some of you, some of you youngins may not know. Some of you younger people may not know. But a rabbit's foot, most of us, if you grew up in the time I did in the 50s, uh, child of the 50s and 60s, you, you, would, you would know that a lot of people uh, sometimes had them hanging on their belt buckle. They would, they, would run, they would carry a rabbit's foot. Why? For good luck. It was supposed to help you have good luck. Now, of course... There was nothing to that, but that was the notion. But that's kind of how I think people that want to have Jesus, but a Jesus that they can summon when they need to, like a genie, but when not, they don't want to have anything to do or let him have anything to do with their lives or how they run them or what they do and how they decide things that they decide. Still, too many people want another Jesus the other Jesus. Now the sentence is in verses 16 through 32. Pilate finally realizes there's no way out. We know from another gospel his wife begs him to and once again he didn't listen to his wife. That usually doesn't turn out very well and it sure didn't for him. But he was a coward and he wanted to please and so he was shrewd politician once again and he sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion you've already heard the gory details and Mark doesn't even go into as much as some of the other gospels 
But after Pilate's goons had their way with Jesus, mocking him, beating him, spitting on him, they took him and crucified him not far outside the city gates of old Jerusalem then. It's well within the gates of the city now. But then it was just outside the city where people could see and one of the busiest roads and see what happens to those who flaunt Roman justice. He was taken to a place known as Golgotha, a gravel yard essentially of excavation. And there in that place was crucified. Now, by the way, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. Oh, no. But they perfected it. They perfected it as an executionary art form. If you'd passed by that day almost 2,000 years ago, if you had passed by and you had seen these three crosses on a hill, you would have seen nothing but stripped naked men. And the only thing you would have seen other than their brutalized, dying bodies would have been perhaps some kind of inscription saying something about who they were or maybe their crime. But in this case, it was Pilate himself that sent this inscription to be put on the cross, on the vertical part of the cross. The horizontal was what was carried by the, the convicted, but then put, hung on the vertical cross. And in that, on that vertical cross were the words that are back there on that stained glass window behind the Mortons there. If you turn around and look that, if you're able, some of you are able to see. Uh, Will you see the crown of thorns? That is in Latin. It was written in Latin and in Greek and in Hebrew. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Now you remember when the Sanhedrin folks, the Jewish leaders heard that, what did they say? No, no. No, don't put that. Say, he said he was Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Pilate said, get out of here. I've had it. What I've written, I have written. That's going to wait. It's going to stay. The suffering continues in verses 33 through 39. Jesus had been on the cross for three hours, but then came high noon. And something began to change. At high noon, something else besides the wrath of men. Jesus had already been brutalized and beaten and crucified, spat on and mocked and degraded and shamed. But now something far more ominous was coming and falling upon the Son of God. Something else beside the wrath of men fell on Jesus. A darkness like something they had never seen before. Now don't 
think for one moment that even back then, they didn't know what an eclipse was. What a solar eclipse was. They had, many people had seen them, documented, told the stories. They knew what it was. But they knew also they didn't last that long. This one lasted for three hours. And it was a darkness of a kind that had only been seen long ago in this country of Egypt. In the time of the first Passover, when God sent the ten plagues on, Israel, on Egypt, and one of them was what? A darkness that was blacker than any night. It was a supernatural darkness, not something that was an astral phenomenon known. It had been the darkness like came upon the, the Egyptians. And it was a sign of absolute and utter judgment. But the question is, who was God who sent this darkness judging? Jesus knew. He had even asked that if there was a way in the Garden of Gethsemane that it would, he could get not drink that cup. He wanted to do that in his humanity, but he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours, Father. Who was God judging? God was judging not the ones that deserve to be judged, but his own son. But he did deserve then on the cross to be judged. Why? Because he had taken the pollution of all of our sin and vile iniquity. He was the one now made sin by the Father. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God through him. It was in this eerie darkness that Jesus felt something he had never felt before and it terrified him to the core of his being. He knew that how ominous that shadow was even in the darkness of Gethsemane. He was praying that there's another way because he knew how horrible it would be. He knew that he would go through something that he could not and never had experienced because in that darkness the Father himself drew his presence, withdrew his presence from his only son. And in its place, instead of his love and his adoration and his sustaining power, Jesus felt his father turn his back on him. His face away from the son whom he had known through all eternity. Jesus' cry of agony was not the result of what others had done to him, but because of what the Father did in turning and withdrawing the Father's pleasure and feeling his full, unvented wrath. For the first time in his endless existence, Jesus Christ was cut off from the Father's love. That's unimaginable. He who had known from all eternity past in the dance of the Trinity, in the fellowship 
of the Father, Son, and Spirit together. Complete joy, presence, light, glory. And Jesus now finds himself kicked out of the dance of the Trinity into outer darkness. Forsaken of God. Because he had been polluted by our sin. And the father forsakes his only son. We will soon sing here in the closing hymn. How deep the father's love for us. One of the lines says how great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. In an anguish of soul, Jesus finally cried out in the sixth hour and breathed his last and died. Now Mark records two very important things that happened immediately after the death of Jesus. As soon as Jesus was dead, two things happened right immediately at that point. One, all three of the gospel writers record that immediately after the death of Jesus, the veil of the temple was torn from the top down. From top to bottom. Now, could that have ever been done by men? Yes, from the bottom up. You can start tearing and keep ripping and somehow go up. But this happened 80 feet 60 to 80 feet, that curtain probably was massive. And it was ripped apart. And the veil was penetrated. The veil that had kept sin away from the presence of the holy God. Symbolized that. It was divine action that pierced that separation and tore down that veil that kept Sinners from God. The sacrificial system was now only obtained through Jesus himself. The old temple was obsolete. That's why Jesus said it's going to be destroyed. It's not going to come back. It is going to be a relic of the past because a new way is coming through Jesus' flesh, through what he did on the cross. He's going to make that new world the sacrificial system would be obsolete. I love what this line from another hymn I love so much, Mercy Speaks by Jesus' Blood. We've got to do that again pretty soon. We've done it many times in the past. But listen to these words. Peace of conscience, peace with God, we obtain through Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood speaks solid rest. We believe and we are blessed. All her debts were cast on me, and she must and shall go free. Should the law against her roar, Jesus' blood still speaks with power. All her debts were cast on me, and she must and shall go free. You know who's saying that in this song? It's Jesus saying to his Father, because I bore as the substitute. I took their sin. I paid for it now. They, the guilty ones, who 
who deserve the judgment and the wrath, they get to go free. Not only is it so that I'm asking, Father, it must be so because you are a just God and you will not punish sin twice. You've punished it in me. They get to go free. You see, that's the glory of substitutionary atonement. But that afternoon, another interesting thing happened right after Jesus died. That afternoon, a pagan centurion somehow realized something in this world is different. I'm sure he didn't know what or how or why. But he knew something and he watched as Jesus died on that cross. He watched how he died and what he saw and what he heard in that six hours as he was superintending the death of Jesus of Nazareth. He knew that somehow this was no mortal man. You see, this guy, the centurion, you know who he was? He was a death dealer. He was a death dealer. He had seen many men die, and he had put many men to death, but he had never seen a man die. This was unique. What he saw, what he heard, what he really thought, was this really God's son? The real God? Or was he thinking this is maybe one of the pantheon, Roman pantheon? Maybe this was one of the gods that he didn't know about? But he knew this was something that was out of this world. And regardless of how the centurion meant it, the pagan Romans spoke the truth about Jesus. That's the point. He testified. Remember Mark starts his gospel. Jesus is the son of God. And he finishes it. Jesus is the son of God. Attested to by a pagan. Listen to this quote from Scott Pinson. Regardless of how the centurion meant what he said. This is the first time in Mark. That a human being identifies Jesus as the son of God. Throughout his gospel Mark has been leading us to the truth. That until you recognize the meaning of Jesus' death. You do not know Jesus at all. Jesus showed everyone with his public execution that establishing the kingdom of God required him to die as a substitute. It had to happen is what he's saying. Only you understood, once you understood this, you were able to recognize the Son of God as he wants to be recognized. Never again did Jesus tell anyone to keep silent about who he was. Instead, he commanded his followers to go tell everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it on the seas. Go tell it everywhere. Now was the time and it could not be shut up. It could not be held back. My friends, I want to ask you and leave you with one question, but I'm going to give you the answer to it as well. Was the atonement really necessary? 
was the death of Jesus as a substitute for sinners. Him bearing what they deserved and them getting what he deserved. A substitutionary atonement to remove the wrath of God from sinners. Was that really necessary? This is an awfully brutal thing. A horrible thing. Good Friday was not good because it felt good. It was a horrible thing for Jesus. It was a wonderful thing for us. Because of the vicarious penal substitution of Jesus Christ on the cross. But you know many people today think, Ah, that's so barbaric. That's that's so... Oh, that's just disgusting. It's def- that's offensive. Offends my sensibilities. I don't want to think about that. Why well, God just could have just you know waved his magic wand over and say, "Okay, it's all done. It's all gone." You see, that's what Pelagius basically did back in the fifth century. He thought, "Nah, not." Atonement really wasn't necessary. Kind of over the top. God didn't really need it. He just could have just said let bygones be bygones. But Anselm in the 11th century, 12th century, he had a different, uh, well, no, it's the 11th century. He had a different understanding. He's the one that de- defined the idea of penal substitution, the atonement theory, sacrificial. He's the one that did away with the idea that this can be done somehow by ourselves. Or, as others had tried to say, this is a ransom paid to the devil. No! Anselm said, no, this is a ransom paid to God. God is the one who is justly offended. God is the one whose wrath burns against iniquity. And cannot deal with it. It took the Son of God coming to take our place. And die in our place. Paying the debt full for us the guilty to go free. My friends, if you don't believe in substitutionary atonement. You cannot be saved. Because you can't get there yourself. And no one else can do it for you. And no one else is owed it. Jesus paid the debt to the Father. And now you and I who believe in him get to go free. You see, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You can't get away from substitutionary penal atonement. And if you do, if that offends you, There will be something coming that will offend you far more. The only way to life and light is to receive the work of another. To be defined by the doings of another, Jesus Christ, and what he did for sinners like you and me. Have you trusted in him? Do you believe in him? Do you trust the power of his blood to take away your sins. That's what he came to do. That's why he died and that's why he rose again. But that's next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you underwent 
such horrible pain and suffering that we would not have to have the Father turn his face away from us because of our sin. You canceled it. And Lord, you made the guilty to be the ones that get to go free and be with you forever. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.